Hello and welcome to An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. I'm your host, Josh. I appreciate you joining me as I explore new ways of making recovery more accessible to folks that may struggle with the God aspect of some recovery programs. All are welcome here. The primary purpose of this podcast is to read from the AA literature through the eyes of an atheist and try to make sense of all the God stuff that's in there. Along the way, I hope to hear and share the stories of others while learning other ways of keeping sober. Hopefully, this results in others learning as well. So I just want to welcome anybody who's new to the podcast or anybody returning. Thank you so much for for continuing to to listen in every week or for joining me for the first time. It's just amazing to see more and more people checking in and and more people commenting and more people following the show. It, It just really blows my mind, to be honest. And I can't thank you all enough. As far as like leading this episode off with stuff that I typically do, which is just kind of a little check-in of, of sorts and then going into the reading. I don't really have a lot going on right now. And I honestly can say that in this instance, I really enjoy that feeling that I don't have a whole lot going on right now. You know, I'm going into the holidays and it's not stressing me out at all. I do have like, I don't know, a little bit of loneliness, but that's a feeling that I can sit with lately. Not being in a relationship is still something that I kind of, you know, struggle with just existentially. A lot of it has to do with like my, you know, my love languages are, are physical touch and and quality time. And while I can, I can reach out to friends for pretty much all aspects of that, there's, you know, portions of the quality touch that, that I kind of crave as a human that can't really be met in a platonic sense. So that leaves me lonely a little bit, uh, but if there were going to be a check-in, I think for me, overall, that check-in would be, I am sitting with that a lot better now. I'm not reaching out to, you know, exes or I'm not trying to hook up with anybody. I'm not trying to quick fix it. I'm not trying to get into a relationship just so that I can feel a little whole in that one regard. I'm willing to just sit and accept that, you know, for now, that's just going to have to go unmet, but it doesn't mean I'm not loved. And it doesn't mean that I don't have people that I can spend time with. That is one thing that I've increased. I, I think I've talked before. You know, I was I was feeling pretty introverted and I was kind of feeling withdrawn. And recently I started getting out and really spending time with some people. I have a friend that I've known for a long time who I, you know, I really enjoy spending time with. She is basically a polar opposite in a lot of ways. But when it comes to us working through life stuff together, we are able to do it in a way that I haven't really found in a long time. And it's good that we, we had a chance to reconnect. She's religious. She's, I think, mostly conservative. She's she's not a lot like me in a lot of these regards. Our politics don't line up. Our, our religion beliefs, our religious beliefs don't line up. But while we've had discussions about that, we've never attacked each other over those beliefs. We don't judge each other based on those beliefs. If anything, the fact that we don't believe the same thing, but our values and our morals are are similar has made us stronger as friends. And, you know, actually, this makes me think of something I will I will comment on. You know, right now, there is a lot of just politically, and I'm not going to get into politics so much as what I think our current modern societal take on politics is is doing. I mean, I've probably mentioned before, like this divide that's happening in our countries, uh, it's based around this team-sided knee-jerk reaction towards people. And the reason why this is going to be relevant is there's a a person that we all kind of know. And my knee-jerk reaction to this person, because his politics are so extreme to mine, was that I didn't like the guy. And when I said that to my friend, this person that I, I, I'm referencing, who I've known for a while, that I've reconnected with, when I said that to her, 
her reaction wasn't what I was expecting. Her, her actual, her actual reaction was she seemed slightly offended that I didn't like this person. And that got me thinking that one, I don't know this person very well. I'm not, he's not there. There's no reason for me to be talking poorly about somebody that I don't know. That's not the kind of person I want to be. That's somebody that I used to be. And that's not something I, I, somebody I want to be now. I don't have any reason to judge that on. I don't have anything to judge that on outside of knowing a little bit about his political background. Like, I don't know what his actual core values are, or what his beliefs are. And the fact that she could look past things that maybe she doesn't agree with with me and see the good in me and values this person in the same way, then I, sh- I should be able to at least be open to considering that. At the very least, I should accept that he's just a human who has different beliefs and not then judge him poorly based on that. You know, he's a person that isn't extreme in that, you know, he's not he's not a conspiracy theorist that's trying to like go hang out with JFK or something. He's, you know, he just has a, a different metric for his beliefs. You know, he was in the newspaper for following those beliefs in a certain way. I've been in the newspaper for following mine. When I do Activision or whenever I, I showed up for, you know, for specific events, I was standing behind my beliefs and my and my values, and I was hoping to be judged appropriately for that, to, to be judged in a, in a kind way, you know? And while I wasn't scared if people judged me poorly, I would hope that they'd want to get me know, get to know me further before making a major judgment. And so really, I just started seeing that based on her reaction and conversing with her further, you know, I apologize for, for making a bunch of assumptions about somebody I don't know, for trying to shit talk somebody that I don't know. And also apologize for not really taking a lesson from her in that we should be able to look past people's stuff. Now, if it's an extreme that's going to cause real harm, that's different. But if it's a situation where, you know, they voted differently than me and maybe they they, they signed up for some stuff that, that I don't agree with. I used to have discussions about that stuff. Maybe they'd get heated, but at the end of the day, I would still be friends with them. I have friends from high school that have political views that I don't agree with. And as long as we don't talk about that stuff, we are fine. Hundreds of years ago, <laughs> it seems like that was just kind of the rule. You don't talk about religion and politics because it can, you know, it can have a major detriment into in how we view each other. And at the end of the day, when you have the opportunity, I have had the opportunity to get to the core values that people have. And, and have that be what I decide I want around me. The politics don't necessarily align with mine. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But when it comes to like be kind to others, treat people with respect, show appreciation for people around you, you know, etc. Some of those core values overlap with any of the belief systems, any of the political beliefs, the religious beliefs. And it was a good, it was a good wake up call. One, to see that I'm like still teachable. I'm still open to recognizing wrongs that I'm doing. There's still a lot for me to continue to work on. This was one of them, the major one that I've had when I was, when I was in my old way of thinking, where I'd shit around, I'd shit on people that were around me because I wasn't healthy. And so I'd lash out and I would shit on people and I would try to tear the people down. That isn't who I want to be. This was, this was a, a version of that, that I could hide behind my, my superior political views and I don't want to do that. So it was, a, it was a great lesson. It was a great opportunity for me to see someone that I really care about have have such a reaction to what I was saying because we are so different. So I guess ultimately what I'm saying is that I think in an echo chamber, I wouldn't have had that person check me, not as readily 
I think in an echo chamber that I would have had people join in. And that's not to say that I don't want to continue to hang out with people that have similar values, similar like views or whatever. But having a friend who has been able to set that aside for me for years, have enough of a difference of opinion to be like, well, now hold on. You know, maybe this is you're you're going too harshly with this. Maybe you're you're not looking at it from this angle. So it was really valuable. I'm glad that I started hanging out with these people again. I'm glad I didn't just live in my isolation. You know, it's been nice having somebody say, hey, what are you doing? Let's play some video games. Let's hang out, you know, dragging me out of the house and stuff. I've really been enjoying that. And it's meant a lot to me that there's still people that even though it's been a while since we've hung out are still there as friends. And I think something I need to focus on is not letting that lapse. While that's something I've kind of had a difficulty in, you know, I seem to have like this season where I sort of float around from friend to friend to friend, and that's just been how my life's always been. There's no reason for me to not continue to have contact with, you know, this person and, and the other friends that I've made. And I can still make new friends. That's the other thing that I really have been enjoying about the last few weeks. You know, I'm making a new friend. So it's not impossible, even in my 40s. Even though it feels like it sometimes is, or it's just completely awkward and unnecessary to try to make new friends. Uh, it's been nice that, that that's not the case. And while that's kind of more life lesson stuff, I guess, or life things that I'm learning, that all directly correlates with, you know, my recovery. And it correlates with my relationship with alcohol and recovery. I was taught, I was thinking more about this whole alcoholic thing and how I don't really call myself an alcoholic. I just say I don't drink because my relationship has changed with that word and it's changed with, you know, the way that I, I go about my sobriety and my recovery. I'm not beholden to it. It's not a weight that weighs down on me every day. I don't wake up thinking, I better not drink today. I better not drink. Most of the time, I don't even think about it. I go to bars with my friends and I don't even consider, like I know people are drinking and it's and it's a thing. I, when I go shopping, I think this is what I was thinking about. When I go grocery shopping, when I, this comes from the book, the whole like, when I see alcohol, recoil from it, like from a hot flame I just don't want that relationship with it. So, you know, when I go shopping and I and I don't need cereal that day, I don't fucking avoid the cereal aisle. Walk down, I don't even notice there's cereal. Or I just walk right past it and don't take any, you know, maybe I'll consider, do I need cereal? Nope, cool. And keep pushing. That's the relationship that I've been striving to have with alcohol. So it's been, that has been nice to have because now it has really allowed me to actually focus in on all this other little stuff like my relationships with my friends, like continually being allowed to check myself in a way that's healthy, like take a step back and think, well, did I judge this person correctly? Am I actually practicing these principles? I know that's 10th step work, but doing it on the, on the spot in the moment and not having it come down to, okay, so ninth step, 10th step, 11th step, just have it be a thing that happens. Seeing that I was a problem, recognizing that there's a solution, reaching out to my friend and making that right, and then us having a discussion about it. That was how I solved that. And it didn't weigh on me. I didn't feel shame and guilt and, and, and despair over it. I just was able to handle it. That to me is work in this program. That is what I have learned from this program. And it and it doesn't come down to a very con contextualized A, B, C, D, I do this every day thing, kind of like how the book describes. It's just natural now. And so, yes, being able to live my life that way makes it a lot easier for me to just go out and hang out with my friends at a bar and just be normal. I don't fear or hide from or um, disregard alcohol in some horrible way. Like people drink, I don't give a shit. I don't. And all this is tied together. All this little stuff is tied together. It's the little stuff that gets me.
you know, that used to get me in trouble and would build up. Appreciated that this work, this podcast, especially lately, has really helped pull a lot of this stuff out and helped me work through a lot of the stuff, but really has helped solidify my my recovery. So even in the loneliness that I might feel, even in the sense that maybe I don't fully understand what's coming next, you know, I don't live in the future probably as much as I should. I feel at peace. It's a great feeling. I might have a new job coming up. I just filled out some paperwork for that. It's made me a little lazier at the job I currently have, but it sounds like it's a great opportunity. They know all about my background, my past. They're going to try to work through it, it seems like. I'm not getting my hopes up quite yet because there's still a few hurdles to go through, but I met with an amazing uh, person that works there and he was willing to take some time on a weekend to come give me an interview. And that felt amazing. My qualifications on paper and a little bit, he'd read, he'd seen my TikTok. Somebody that I know showed him my TikToks and so showed him some of my recovery stuff, which isn't necessarily something I would want to lead with. Um, I put it out in the world, so it's not like I'm trying to hide it either, but that was enough for him to be convinced that he should talk to me. So that's a weird thing to consider too. I'll keep this short, but the fact that what I'm doing here to heal myself and hopefully help others find their way has created an atmosphere where now that's like a quality people want in their workforce. You know what I mean? Like he saw something in me and way I was presenting this information that told him that I would be a good fit at his company enough for him to come down on a weekend and it's on a Saturday morning to come to me at a coffee shop, not even have me go to the business. He came to me and sat down and had a meeting with me and had an interview with me. And part of it is just, that's the kind of guy he is, but still having just this little bit of information be enough for him to be like, I want to talk to this person. And it's not like it's some sort of a executive position in some major firm. Like it's a help desk position that pays well and is for a good company, but I can't help but be humbled by that. You know, all this stuff seems to be leading to things that are bigger and better. And it wasn't intentional. I just wanted to help people get sober (laughs) and stay sober myself. So When I explain to people that as long as they're putting this kind of stuff just out there, you don't have to be, you don't have to break your anonymity. But like when I talked about my friends in the past that were struggling with alcohol and why do I hang out with people that might still be struggling? And this is the same kind of stuff. My character is hopefully good enough that when I'm hanging out with people that are still struggling with alcoholism, they're having a hard time stopping. They see me and they use that as a point of reference and maybe they reach out. Or maybe they tell me about a friend that I should reach out to. Or maybe they tell me that, hey, you know, I you're a stand-up guy and I really enjoy that you're honest about this kind of stuff. We speak on my podcast. Or will you come, you know, do this thing? Or there's a job opening and this guy really likes what you had to say and he wants to come interview you. It's a weird way that things can happen when you put that stuff out in the world. And some people call it luck. Like that's a form of luck being open for opportunities, but also putting yourself out there in a way that those opportunities are more readily available. I think, yeah, I think that's all fairly well related, but so that's it. It's kind of a jumbly, like this is a mess of stuff that's going on. And you know, if, if folks out there feel like maybe I ramble on just a little too much at the beginning of these, please let me know. I have a tendency to just do that. I kind of pull that string and it's fucking impossible sometimes for me to, uh, to tone that down. But so far it seems like that's not been a huge like deal breaker or anything. People seem to, to enjoy the, the beginnings of these the way they are. So if that's the case, I'm just going to keep that as is like how I say, I didn't have very much to say and I'm looking it's been about 15 minutes. That's pretty typical too. Uh, that's why I started the podcast <laughs> ultimately is because I like talking about this stuff. I like talking about self-improvement stuff. I like talking about my life and how things are going and checking in and 
working through my my flaws and faults and doing it out loud is is just a better way of doing it. So without further ado, I'm going to get into the Stoic. December 14th, what we should know by the end. Soon you will die and still you aren't sincere. Undisturbed are free from suspicion that external things can harm you, nor are you gracious to all knowing that wisdom and acting justly are one and the same. Marcus Aurelius Meditations 437. From what we understand, Marcus wrote many of his meditations later in life when he was suffering from serious illnesses. So when he says, soon you will die, he was speaking frankly to himself about his own mortality. How scary that must have been. He was staring at the real possibility of death, not liking what he saw in these last minutes. Sure, he'd accomplished many things in his life, but his emotions were still the cause of discomfort, pain, and frustration. He knew that with his limited time left, better choices would provide relief. Hopefully, you have a lot more time left but that makes it even more important to make headway while you still can. We are unfinished products until the end, as Marcus knew very well. But the earlier we learn it, the more we can enjoy the fruits of labor on our character, and the sooner we can be free or freer of insecurity, anxiety, ungraciousness, and unstoicness. I mean, I don't know if the the book really captured what I feel is being said in this. I I don't know the history of Marcus Aurelius uh, enough to know how much of his philosophies were changing as he grew closer to his own mortality. But I feel like this is more of like a, to me, a reflection, like a a reflection that you could make every day. Soon you will die. We're going to die soon. Let's be realistic. We're little mini blips. We're not even blips on like the cosmic scale of anything. And sometimes it's okay to think about that and realize that, you know, time is extremely short. We have an opportunity right now to make a lot of major changes. They do take time to really take hold. But when I look at myself right now, you know, still I am not sincere or undisturbed or free from suspicion that external things can harm me, Not nor am I gracious to all. I mean, I try to be those things. I do my best to do those things, but that doesn't guarantee anything. That 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 work will never end. I will never obtain a 100% score on all these things. And that's kind of the point. I need to constantly work on that, constantly work towards that. There is never an end goal. Like like the, the reading points out, we're an unfinished product until the end. I, don't, I mean, we're just an unfinished product. We're never a finished product, even when we're all, you know, in the ground buried. We don't suddenly become finished when we die. It's kind of a weird phrasing that they used. But ultimately, no, how, no matter how close to death we are, we still are not 100% of these things. We may be sincere as much as possible, but there's still moments of insincerity. There's still moments where we're disturbed. Maybe, maybe I'm not, you know, maybe I'm not speaking that correctly. This is, this is primarily for me. No matter how hard I work on this, I'm still not free of the suspicion that external things can harm me. If anybody were able to actually obtain that a hundred percent, I would, I would feel like what would be the point after that? To me, the whole process of continually working on this is life. That suffering is life. And I think the f- fact of the matter that it isn't ever obtainable gives me a measurement of success. Like every day I'm striving for something and every day I get closer and I can look back and see that I've made progress, but there's never an obtainable goal. And it puts, I think, a lot more emphasis on the fact that I'm doing this anyways. You know, how am I still being disturbed? If external things can harm me, or I'm worried that they can harm me, what does that say about my attachment? How can I improve my attachment to external things? Are these external things still giving me value? The answer will probably always be yes. 
as hard as I might try to be free of the chains of external uh, inputs, you know, that's always going to be the case, right? I mean, it is for me. There will be some measure of that. I care about my image in some ways. I don't want people to think poorly of me. Now, what I do to act on that, like, do I go outside myself to try to change how people view me? Or do I look internally to make sure that my character can withstand the scrutiny? If I didn't care about what people thought, I don't think I would try as hard to work on my internal character. But I'm not doing it to appease somebody. And I'm not doing it to please others, at least not right now. Uh, Though I say that there is still some level of that. You know, I'm going back to the gym so that I can get into better shape. But ultimately, the hope that I'm in better shape is so that I'm a good partner, so that I'm a good friend, so that I can have some longevity in life. Those are external things. Being capable to keep up with the people around me is being sort of measured by external things. So... Now, if I don't have success in that, how much of that is going to harm me? How much do I fear rejection? How much am I worried that my friends will just stop caring about me? Like, all that stuff will continue to be something I work on. It really will. I mean, part of the reason why I still continue to go to traditional meetings is because I feel that it is giving voice to the fact that an atheist can do this program uh, successfully without a god, and others might respond to that. I started this podcast because I felt that that could be of value. And while I do this for myself, I'm not going to say that the external validation that I received isn't extremely helpful and probably helped carry me through a period where I thought maybe I should just stop doing it because that's kind of just what happens with me. So it just, that just sort of feeds into the, you know, what I'm saying. There's, there's never, there's never a point We're we're close to death every day and it is a subtle reminder to say that right now, if I were to die, as though, even though I would die happy, like my my passage to the next life or whatever it is, I'm satisfied with where I'm in, where I'm at. I'm not a hundred percent any of those things that was being referenced, and I'm okay with that. I'm actually not just okay with it. I'm thankful because what would life be without struggle? Struggling to to get better at things, to to do better. All right, we have made it to the twelve by twelve step three tradition three. Step three is made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. I don't think I need to really say a lot about the difficulty of doing such a thing as an atheist. And I don't think I need to say anything about how difficult this is for uh, even people that believe in a God. It's not an easy thing to just give up what you are clinging to. Some people, maybe it is. For me, it was not. It's interesting that the the Stoic reading kind of touched on that a little bit. When I was drinking, my drinking was a result of me protecting the raw, middle, gooey part of me, right? That I didn't want to have anybody have any access to, including myself. And I was just letting it fester and rot inside me because it was unwell and unhealthy. And so I drank and I had a lot of like lashing out that I did and I treated people poorly and I had all these defenses up. I had no boundaries, but somehow kept people at bay. I was a fucking mess is what I'm saying. Now at some point in my recovery, I used to say something along the lines of, I was willing to turn my will over to alcohol on a regular basis. So the idea that I would get stuck on this step and be unwilling to turn over my problems to the ether, to just space, to just nothing, is kind of baffling to me. And I kind of still stick by that. The The act of turning this thing that you might be clinging to over, one, this step requires no action. 
And I, and I need that to be just as clear as possible. If anybody's struggling on the steps, it's really important to kind of look at the wording. And I know a lot of people have moved past the steps. Probably people that are listening have moved past the steps. And maybe this is just like something they're listening to because they're interested in hearing a different take on them. If you're struggling with the steps because you feel like that this is like the start of your recovery or at least the start of like a new path in your recovery and you're like, okay, I'll give these steps a try because I'm still struggling and maybe they'll help. Nothing else has. Or you just believe the steps work. It, like I do in some regard, the wording of this step is really important. Made a decision. That is the only bit of action that this step is really asking. Just made the decision. And I think that's what's important. And that's the the baby steps towards being able to just kind of turn things over to the nothing. When I was able to look at this step that way and realize that I didn't actually have to do that, I just have to make the decision that I was okay with doing that, it seemed like the action part that would come later, the part where I actually turned that stuff over, uh, was easier. It was easier to wrap my head around. It was easier for my emotional state uh, to kind of allow that to occur. I personally don't ask for anything of the world when I turn this over. I'm not giving this to somebody. I'm not absolving myself of responsibility. For me, when I do this step or when I have done this step or when I consider this in my life, it kind of comes to the practice. I'm sure there's a, an actual phrasing for how this practice works, but I believe it's a Buddhist or meditative practice. If something occurs in my life, an emotion or a feeling that I have, in the past, I used to just cling on to it and I would spiral and it would be super hard for me to break away from that. Uh, as an example, I'll use when I was creating a dating profile years ago, a couple years ago, I started taking some pictures of myself and I was getting really frustrated because I didn't like how I looked in the pictures. The pictures were not turning out. And I got really self-conscious because I felt like the whole online dating process is summed up on how well you can take pictures as a, as a guy. I mean, not saying this is only specific to guys, but it seems predominantly specific to guys. I mean, people don't take my picture. So I had to take my own. And I got really wrapped up in the fact that I was going to be judged harshly for that. I have friends. I hung out with people. But I just did not take my own pictures. So... There I am trying to take my pictures. They're turning out like garbage, or at least I think. I'm being super judgmental on myself. I'm in sobriety, by the way. This is still happening. And I start spiraling because it starts adding up to, I'm not going to be able to take good pictures. People are going to judge me harsh for, harshly for that. I'm not going to match with anybody. I don't have the qualities or the worth that you know need to happen in order to make a, a successful dating profile i'm a felon nobody wants to date a felon i don't have any money i'm living in my grandparents' house while they're out of town i don't have a lot to offer a partner i blah 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 blah. i just got stuck in self and i started spiraling the idea of this step three is to be able to stop that spiral and what i was saying about the meditation the feeling of less than feeling less than Whatever thought it was that brought that feeling up, my picture's garbage. Instead of letting that get hooks in me and then drag me down to the abyss, being able to look at that and go, that's an interesting thought, and letting that thought go. And that sounds I, that sounds like a bunch of bullshit, to be honest, but that that's really the practice I started putting in, is allowing myself to ex explore a lot of these thoughts. There's other things that call this like the witness of just being able to just see outside yourself for a second and look at these things in an objective way, to kind of pull my emotion out of it, the body of emotion out of it, and to just look at the thought that, that whatever emotion it was I was feeling that was tied to it, try to separate the two, and then just let it go. Like just, it's a thought. It's not going to fucking do me any harm. It's not going to kill me. It doesn't have to stay. There's no reason why I can't just not have that thought. 
if the thought can appear, it can disappear. And so to put it more reasonably in context of my little example, the thought of my pictures are garbage and therefore I am wouldn't have any weight. I, I'm allowed to think that and I'm allowed to feel that, but I'm not allowed to hold on to that. I'm allowed to just let the thought fade away as as it faded in. And, and that all came down to me making the decision to turn that over to whatever, to nothing. It doesn't matter. Now, I know this, this step is going to go into something a little bit more extravagant with that, which is our will and our lives. And it's going to talk about will as in willpower and, you know, our lives as, as alcoholics. But really, it just comes down to what we are, which is our emotions and how we think of those emotions, ultimately. So much of our lives are ran by fear. So much of what we decide to do are ran by doubt or whatever, immediacy in thinking, having to, to act on impulse because of hanging on to these thoughts and being stuck in spirals or whatever other things. That's what life is, really, when it's boiled down to its, its rendered form. And the idea that we turn all of that over to just some guy in the sky sounds fucking weird to me. But honestly, so does just like letting it go. It sounds just as impossible, but it's not impossible. There's a lot of things to help with that. I've mentioned some of them. Let's see what the 12 by 12 has to say about it. Practicing step three is like open, the opening of a door, which to all appearances is still closed and locked. All we need is a key and a decision to swing the door open. There is only one key and it is called willingness. Once unlocked by willingness, the door opens almost of itself and looking through it, we shall see a pathway beside which is an inscription. It reads, this is the way to a faith that works. I really like this opening because it's kind of what I was saying. You just have to be willing. You can fuck it up and fail 100%, but just be willing. And it, it, it does. It does become easier. As we latch, I latched so hard onto so many of my toxic traits, so many of the things that protected my alcoholism, some of the things that protected me from the outside world. And there was like no way that I could let that go. But once I became willing to just do that, it just started to be able to be possible. That's kind of what this is saying. In the first two steps, we are engaged in reflection. We saw that we were powerless over alcohol, but we also perceived that faith of some kind, if only in AA itself, is possible to anyone. These conclusions did not require action. They required only acceptance. Of course, see my, my previous episodes on what I think about the first two steps. Like all the remaining steps, step three calls for affirmative action, for it is only by action that we can cut away the self-will, which has always blocked the entry of God, or if you like, a higher power into our lives. Faith, to be sure, is necessary, but faith alone can avail nothing. We can have faith, yet keep God out of our lives. Therefore, our problem now becomes just how and by what specific means shall we be able to let him in? Step three represents our first attempt to do this. In fact, the effectiveness of the whole AA program will rest upon how well and earnestly we have tried to come to a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. It's important at this point to again point out that that is included in this because of being hard fought work by an atheist, apparently. While Ebby kind of led the charge on this by telling Bill that it was okay to just believe in whatever he wanted to, having it included in the book and in the steps seemed to be something that wasn't going to happen at first. And that's where the idea that, well, if we're going to have the third tradition, which we're going to get to, then you have to include this. Like, you, you can't have it both ways. You can't say that the only requirement is, you know, a desire to stop drinking and then turn around and say, but also you have to believe in Jesus Christ. That's not, that's not how this works. 
Uh, anyways, to every worldly and practical-minded beginner, this step looks hard, even impossible. I think at times this step looks impossible just in general, just because we get, you know, for me, I get stuck in my ways. I get stubborn. I don't want to make major drastic changes anymore. just want to fucking like coast and <laughs> take a fucking break, you know? Uh, but like I said, the more willingness, the more practice you put into it, the easier the stuff gets. No matter how much one wishes to try exactly, how can he turn his will, his own will and his own life over to the care of whatever God he thinks there is, or in this case, no God. Fortunately, we who have tried it, and with equal misgivings, can testify that anyone, anyone at all, can begin to do it. We can further add that at a beginning, even the smallest, is all that is needed, which is which is exactly what I said. And I agree, 100%. Once we have placed the key of willingness in the lock and have the door ever so slightly open, we fight thick and we, we can always open it some more. Though self-will may slam it shut again, as it frequently does, it will always respond the moment we again pick up the willingness, the key of willingness. So that idea of self-will, self-will run riot. I don't think that's really where I'm going with anymore with my recovery. This idea that the idea that me giving this up is not self-will. The idea that anytime I take quote unquote quote the reins, then it's going to be just fucking calamity. I, I don't operate that way. I'm pretty aware and conscious of most everything that I do. Um, a lot of that just comes from work and practice and thoughtfulness and having a sense of um, intention, you know, about the things that I want to do. There isn't a point where, like, I just wake up anymore all of a sudden. I'm like, oh, fucking God took the wheel or whatever. You know, I am aware and participatory in all the things that I do in my life now. I think that allows me to operate in self-will. The idea of giving this up to the world, the ether, the universe, uh, isn't an idea that you're no longer participating. And I think that's where like the self-will thing can kind of mess people up. Maybe this all sounds mysterious and remote, something like Einstein's theory of relativity or a proposition in nuclear physics. It isn't at all. Let's look at how practical it actually is. Every man and woman who has joined AA and intends to stick has, without realizing it, made a beginning on step three. Isn't it true that in all matters touching upon alcohol, each of them has has decided to turn his or her life over to the care, protection, and guidance of Alcoholics Anonymous? Already a willingness has been achieved to cast out one's own will and one's own ideas about the alcohol problem in favor of those suggested by AA. Any willing newcomer feels sure AA is the only safe harbor for the foundering vessel he has become. Now, if this is not turning one's will and life over to the newfound providence, then what, what is it? So I don't recommend people come in and feel like that AA is their only hope. I think that's really kind of a poor choice. Not that there's anything wrong with people that choose to do that, but I feel it's encouraged and should be encouraged that people seek counseling and seek uh, other therapeutic ways of, of dealing with a lot of the traumas that are underneath all the alcoholic bullshit that got poured on themselves over the years. Relying solely on AA is exactly why Bill Wilson wrote that letter about emotional sobriety. So I don't know that he really thought about that when he wrote this passage, but I think if you have a newcomer that you're working with, you know, encourage them not to rely 100% on AA as if it were a life preserver and the only one available in the ocean. That's a small toolbox, not a lot of tools in it. And I think that's an unhealthy way to start the rest of someone's life. And I feel do feel like for me, it was the start of the rest of my life coming in and recovering from not just alcohol, but 
the traumas I'd buried for all the years that I've been doing it. So I encourage you, if you have a sponsee or you're working with a newcomer or whatever the case may be, or if you're new yourself, don't have this be the only thing in your toolbox or the only thing you rely on. But suppose that instinct still cries out as it certainly will. Yes, representing alcohol, I guess I have been dependent upon AA, but in all other matters, I must still maintain my independence. Nothing is going to turn me into a non-entity. If I keep on turning my life and my will over to the care of something or somebody else, what will become of me? I'll look like the hole in the donut. This, of course, is the process by which instinct and logic always seek to bolster egotism and so frustrate spiritual development. The trouble is that this kind of thinking takes no real account of the facts, and the facts seem to be these. The more we become willing to depend upon a higher power, the more independent we actually are. Therefore, dependence, as AA practices it, is really a means of gaining true independence of the spirit. Let's examine for a moment this idea of dependence at the level of everyday living. In this area, it is startling to discover how dependent we really are and how unconscious of that dependence. Every modern house has electric wiring carrying power and light to its interior. We are delighted with this dependence. Our main hope is that nothing will ever cut off the supply of current. By so accepting our dependence upon this marvel of science, we find ourselves more independent personally. Not only are we more independent, we are even more comfortable and secure. Power flows just where it is needed. Silently and surely, electricity, that strange energy so few people understand, meets our simplest daily needs and our most desperate ones too. Ask the polio sufferer confined to an iron lung who depends with complete trust upon a motor to keep the breath of life in him. I just want to point out, I think it's funny that they chose science as a thing to believe in uh, above uh, the dependence of it. You know, like it just works. So we do the thing and it continues to work. You plug stuff into the wall, wall makes things work. As long as there's electricity running into the house, there's somebody who can make that happen. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that 100%. But I feel this analogy also allows, you know, my, my version of this to really stand out if, you know, you can plug any God into this, then you can plug no God into this and get the same result. The dependence on the thing is still kind of there. Um, but again, I don't think that it's healthy to depend on AA as you would electricity to your house or as you would if you were a polio sufferer uh, who's dying unless they have the iron lung. But the moment our mental or emotional independence is in question, how diff differently we behave. How persistently we claim the right to decide all by ourselves just what we shall think and just how we shall act. Oh yes, we'll weigh the pros and cons of every problem. We'll listen politely to those who would advise us. But all the decisions are to be ours alone. Nobody is going to meddle with our personal independence in such matters. Besides, we think, there is no one we can surely trust. We are certain that our intelligence, backed by willpower, can rightly control our inner lives and guarantee us success in the world we live in. This brave philosophy, wherein each man plays God, sounds good in the speaking, but it still has to meet the acid test. How well does it actually work? One good look in the mirror ought to be answer enough for any alcoholic. And see, yeah, I take a complete and total departure from the book on that. That's why I say that we shouldn't rely on AA 100%. Quite honestly, if you do enough work on the internal traumas that you suffered throughout your life, actually take an honest look at all those things and how they have influenced and affected literally every choice since those traumas, uh, you, you start to see that the more you do the work, the less they have a hold on you and the more capable you are to make the right decisions. It's fucking what it really all just boils down to. And yes, I'm speaking mostly of myself, but I am giving this out as free advice to anybody who might still be struggling with the idea of, well, I can't do what this book just said. So I'm a lost cause. There's no hope for me. That's not true. It just isn't. 
I think that's kind of why I can't stress enough to people that they need to fill the toolbox full of all the tools. You shouldn't rely just on AA. You shouldn't rely on this idea that if you live in some sort of a state of mental independence, then you're doing this wrong somehow. When ultimately it comes down to the fact that a lot of us drank as a result of the unwell and unhealthy traumas. Now, I have a physical dependency on alcohol. I start to go down a path I can't really just correct, regardless of how healthy I am. And even if at some point I think that might be true, there is no reason for me to drink again. There's, it does me no service. So it's okay for me to look and see, okay, as long as I work on these traumas, the desire to drink is completely removed from me. I am a healthy person. As a result of that, I can make decisions for myself. I don't call my sponsor and ask my sponsor to tell me what to do. I might throw some things his way and ask for some feedback, but ultimately I'm going to make the decision. I'm going to live and die by that decision. Those decisions are becoming healthier, smarter, and more reasonable the more I work on the inner traumas that cause me to make poor decisions to begin with. So this, this idea that we play God when we do that, when we learn healthy and reasonable ways of leading our own lives, uh, is one I can't really support, where I kind of have some contention with the program. And I know this is sort of drilled into people, uh, but again, this whole program is built around the idea that you take what works and you get rid of the rest. This does not work for me. I am independently within my own sound mind and body when I make the decisions that I make and I choose the things that I choose. And it's my job to make sure that those decisions and those choices are built on a strong foundation. And that's pretty much it. Back to the reading. Should his own image in the mirror be too awful to contemplate, and it usually is, he might first take a look at the results normal people are getting from self-sufficiency. Everywhere he sees people filled with anger and fear, society breaking up into warring fra fragments. Each fragment says to the others, we are right and you are wrong. Every such pressure group, if it is strong enough, self-righteously imposes its will upon the rest. And everywhere the same thing is being done on an individual basis. The sum of all this mighty effort is less peace and less brotherhood than before. The, philo the philosophy of self-sufficiency is not paying off. Plainly enough, it is a bone-crushing juggernaut whose final achievement is ruin. What a fucking sad paragraph. I mean, based on like the way that this book and a lot of this literature is written, it's basically saying that a world without God is in ruin. And I just can't fucking get behind that at all. But it's also pointing out that self-righteous groups impose their wills upon the rest. And I got to be real honest, man. There's a lot of groups within AA that do exactly that. Tell a person in Alcoholics Anonymous that Matt's is recovery and fucking hear your answer. Tell them that people that smoke weed are practicing a form of recovery if, if they're not drinking. And, and hear your answer and see how self-righteously imposed upon the AA principles become. Like, that's just the nature of this program. Being atheist, you hear people tell us how it's wrong, and we're not doing it correctly. That's why this whole fucking podcast exists, it's because that's exactly what has happened within this organization, and it doesn't have to be that way. I, I just, this put this paragraph is like, I feel like it's building a case for the author more than it is for us. It's based on that, per, on Bill's personal views, that the reason why the world is suffering is because self-sufficiency. And I got to be honest, it really seems like for the most part, what he's describing is religious groups and political groups who are constantly at battle with each other. And that has nothing to do with self-sufficiency. All those groups believe in their hierarchy. The religious groups believe all the way up till God and the political groups believe all the way up till their president or their presidential choice. 
And not a single bit of that is based on self-sufficiency. Anyways, therefore, we who are alcoholics can consider ourselves fortunate indeed. Each of us has had his own near-fatal encounter with the juggernaut of self-will and has suffered enough under its weight to be willing to look for something better. <laughs> so it is by circumstance rather than by any virtue that we have uh, driven to, been driven to AA, have admitted defeat, have acquired the rudiments of faith, and now want to make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to a higher power. We realize that the word dependence is as distasteful to many psychiatrists and psychologists as it is to alcoholics. Like our professional friends, we too are aware that there are wrong forms of dependence. We have experienced many of them. No adult man or woman, for example, should be in too much emotional dependence upon a parent. They should have been weaned long before. And if they have not been, they should wake up to the fact. This very form of faulty dependence has caused many a rebellious alcoholic to conclude that dependence of any sort must be intolerably damaging. But dependence upon an AA group or upon a higher power hasn't produced any baleful results. And I disagree with that. I, I disagree with that because Bill Wilson disagrees with that. Primarily, just specifically around AA, I read an entire letter where Bill Wilson disagrees with the statement 100%. He says that the dependence on this program has caused him harm because he's, he became narrow-sighted and completely lacked the ability to see anything outside of it. The program itself wasn't doing enough. So please keep that in mind. This is why I just feel like these, these, the whole set of literature just needs to be updated. It really does. Are they going to just continue to read this book two, three, four hundred years from now? Like, is there going to be no growth or progression away from this original text? Are we just stuck with the dogma that if we move away from this text, then everybody in AA is going to suffer for it and they're all going to die drunk? I just can't I just can't get behind that, especially when the fucking founders who progressed in their sobriety and made efforts to become healthier people moved away from a lot of this text. Clearly, that should be a sign that the rest of us should do the same. They showed in the original text that what they were doing at the time worked. They also showed in this text that some of that has changed and they figured out what continues to work. But now that those people have passed away, it's like nobody's willing to move. They're just stuck and people end up getting this book and they see that, you know, they should have a full dependence upon AA and I just don't agree with that. When World War II broke out, this spiritual principle had its first major test. AAs entered the services and were scattered all over the world. Would they be able to take discipline, stand up under fire, and endure the monotony and misery of war? Would the kind of independence they had learned in AA carry them through? Well, it did. They had even fewer alcoholic relapses and emotional binges than AA safe at home did. I can't imagine how they got that number, or there's no fucking statistic to back that up. I really don't like that they do this in these, in these literatures. That's just such a benign, that's just such a fucking random statement. We had even fewer alcoholic relapses. How are you, how, how are you measuring this? Where are you getting this data from? They were just as capable of endurance and valor as any other soldiers. Whether in Alaska or on Salerno beachhead, their dependence upon a higher power worked. And far from being a weakness, this dependence was their chief source of strength. I just don't understand how they could know that. So how exactly can the willing person continue to turn his will and his life over to the higher power? He made a beginning, we have seen, when he commenced to rely upon AA for the solution of his drink problem. By now, though, the chances are that he has become convinced that he has more problem than alcohol and that some of these refuse to be solved by all the sheer personal determination and courage he can muster. They simply will not budge. They make him desperately unhappy and threaten his newfound sobriety. Our friend is, is still victimized by remorse and guilt when he thinks of yesterday. Bitterness still overpowers him when he broods upon those he still envies or hates. His financial insecurity worries him sick. 
and panic takes over when he thinks of all the bridges to safety that alcohol burned behind him. And how shall he ever straighten out that awful jam that cost him the affection of his family and separated him from them? His lone courage and unaided will cannot do it. Surely he must now depend upon somebody or something. Those are capitalized. So, yeah, in the beginning of alcohol recovery, any kind of recovery, it is good to lean into something. I agree with that. It's good to lean into some ideas that maybe you don't know how to agree with right away. Like if somebody handed me the big book right when I was getting sober and I started just, you know, they were like, okay, do all the stuff in there. That would have fucking freaked me out. But what I leaned into is, okay, if I just go to a meeting and I listen to people, it's a good chance I could stay sober doing that for a little while. And then I could start getting to work. And now that I've grown further into my recovery, I can see that I don't need to lean into that anymore, or at least not anything like I used to. I lean into some aspects of it. I lean into the parts that that help me personally. You know, for me, fellowship is extremely important. To others, it's not necessary. The idea that it is a permanent dependence upon this program as written, et cetera, et cetera, uh, is just, it's just dated. I, I've said that a few times, but this sort of wording in this, in this chapter and in this paragraph, it's like you're basically saying that you're just going to be miserable and your life's not really going to have value until you give a hundred percent over all that you are to AA. I just, I see why people feel it's a bit culty. More and more. At first, that somebody is likely to be his closest AA friend. He relies upon the assurance that his many troubles, now made more acute because he cannot use alcohol to kill the pain, can be solved too. Of course, the sponsor points out that our friend's life is still unmanageable even though he is sober, that after all, only a bare start on AA's program has been made. More sobriety brought about by the admission of alcoholism and by the attendance at a few meetings is very good indeed, but it is bound to be a far cry from permanent sobriety and a contented, useful life. That is just where the remaining steps of the AA program come in. Nothing short of continuous action upon these as a way of life can bring the much-desired result. And I can kind of agree with how this is saying when people come into the program, they just need to stay humbled to the fact that they're there and be focused on the fact that they're not drinking. I think that's where a lot of rehabs kind of struggle is they, they don't give that enough time to just settle in for folks. You know, it's, it's sort of hammered down with a bunch of like programming and a bunch of, you know, sessions and it's like all day, every day. And it's and they're removed from any aspect of life. They can just take this kind of vacation. All, all the people that I know that have done recovery or that have done some sort of a rehabilitation struggled with acclimating to life when they got out and struggled with feeling like they were fed all of the answers at once. And they didn't know how to process any of that. And they didn't know where to turn to continue the work. You know, they just sort of dumped out in the world. Okay, figure it out. So this is really good advice to me. Like, take it easy. Take it slow. Listen to someone that you trust. Or listen to someone that at least sounds like they have what you want. Which I really like that kind of advice. You know, the mentorship aspect of AA can be extremely helpful. And, you know, be gentle with yourself. Then it is explained that other steps of the AA program can be practiced with success. Only when step three is given a determined and persistent trial. This statement may surprise newcomers who have experienced nothing but constant deflation and a growing conviction that human will is of no value whatever. Yep. Yeah. And it still is an issue for me and should be for a lot of people, to be quite honest. They have become persuaded, and rightly so, that many problems beside alcohol will not yield to a headlong assault power by the individual alone. But now it appears that there are certain things which only the individual can do. All by himself and in the light of his own circumstances, he needs to develop the quality of willingness 
when he acquires willingness, he is the only one who can make the decision to exert himself. Trying to do this is an act of will on his own. All the 12 steps require sustained and personal exertion to conform to the principles, and so we trust to God's will. See, and that's that's where I, yeah, exert exertion to conform to their principles. Ugh, that's a tough one. It is when we try to make our will conform with God's that we begin to use it rightly. To all of us, this was a most wonderful res- re- uh, revelation. See, and that's that's where I, I've, I've mentioned before. Like, yeah, God could give a shit about you until you beg properly. And then suddenly he works it all out for you. He just needs you to ask the right way. Such a weird concept. Our whole trouble has been the misuse of willpower. We had tried to bombard our problems with it instead of attempting to bring it into agreement with God's intention for us. To make this increasingly possible is the purpose of AA's 12 steps, and step three opens the door. Once we have come into agreement with these ideas, it is really easy to begin the practice of step three. In all times of emotional disturbance or indecision, we can pause, ask for quiet, and in the stillness, simply say, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Thy will, not mine, be done. So in my secular group, we actually say, may I have the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And we're asking ourselves that. We ask ourselves that question. Can I do that for myself today? Am I going to allow myself the room to do that? So that's that's a way that other people can look at it if they're, you know, like me and they're like, I'm not going to say thy will not might be done. That's not that's not on the table for me. All right. On to tradition three, my favorite tradition, the one that I think is the most important to the entirety of the success of AA and the one that I really really reference the most when it comes to people saying that they I don't have a C here because I don't believe in God or my fucking version of this program is somehow corrupt or other people aren't working the right kind of recovery so they don't belong here. We all belong here. And the reason why we all belong here is because a whole wonky ass group of people got together and they said, okay, if we're going to make this work, we need to make a requirement that the only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. Period. There's no parentheses in this. There's no underlined, italicized anything in this. There's no request or requirement that God be followed, that even the principles of the program be followed. You can come to the the groups. You can be a member of AA, uh, even if you're not working the program, even if you're only working part of the program, even if you get to step one, find yourself completely successful in recovery and continue to go to meetings. That's even if you come to the meetings and you're miserable every fucking day, it doesn't matter. The only time to mean that this step cannot be utilized is if somebody's actually causing harm in the groups. If there's people that are being predatory, people that are being physically violent, people that are being manipulative and causing emotional harm to other people and, and trying to take advantage of people in, their, in, in vulnerable states, membership can be revoked under those circumstances. Not entirely of the program, but certainly into the you know certain meetings that they might be attending or, or situationally the kind of people they're hanging out with. But even then, I can't, you can't decide for somebody else that they're not an alcoholic, that they don't want to be there, that they don't belong there. You know, there was somebody that used to come to our meeting section that just sat outside and drank, and he'd start fights with people. Not fight fights, but like arguments with people. He's welcome there. He can't go into the meetings because he doesn't actually have that desire to stop drinking. But somewhere in there, we know that he wants to quit, or he wouldn't keep coming back. We can't tell him to leave unless he gets belligerent. We have before. They have before. Cops have been called on him. If there's room for people like that, there's room for us heathens and non-believers. 
And this this tradition was designed specifically for us, for for those that maybe we're going to have a barrier if something like this wasn't included. This is to stop other members from deciding who can attend. This is the fucking bottom line. It's to stop other members from having power trips and deciding that other members aren't welcome. People still try. They still try. That's how absurd and insane we are as a species. Even when it's fucking written and we read it every day, people still try to run the show and decide who can stay or not, or find some kind of manipulation tactic to run someone off and make them not feel welcome. Drama seekers, it's all here. It's not like like it said in the previous chapters. It's not like just because you show up, you're cured 100%. People have a lot of faults and flaws, and this step, this tradition, excuse me, uh, is designed to keep as many of those flaws out. This tradition is packed with meaning. For AA is really saying to every serious drinker, you are an AA member if you say so. You can declare yourself in. Nobody can keep you out. No matter who you are, no matter how low you've gone, no matter how grave your emotional complications, even your crimes, we still can't deny you AA. We don't want to keep you out. We aren't a bit afraid you'll harm us, never mind how twisted or violent you may be. We just want to be sure that you get the same great chance for sobriety that we've had. So you're an AA member the minute you declare yourself. To establish this principle of membership took years of harrowing experience. In our early time, nothing seemed so fragile, so easily breakable as an AA group. Hardly an alcoholic we approached paid any attention. Most of those who did join us were like flickering candles in a windstorm. Time after time, their uncertain flames blew out and couldn't be relighted. Our unspoken constant thought was, which of us may be the next? A member gives us a vivid glimpse of those days. At one time, he says, every AA group had many membership rules. Everybody was scared witless that something or somebody would capsize the boat and dump us all back into the drink. Our foundation office asked each group to send in its lists of protective regulations. The total list was a mile long. If all those rules had been in effect everywhere, nobody could have possibly joined AA at all. So great was the sum of our anxiety and fear. We were resolved to admit nobody to AA but that hypothetical class of people we termed peer alcoholics. Except for their guzzling and the unfortunate results thereof, they could have no other complications. So beggars, tramps, asylum inmates, prisoners, queers, plain crap, crackpots, and fallen women were definitely out. Yes sir, we'd cater only to the peer and respectable alcoholics. Any others would surely destroy us. Besides, if we took in all those odd ones, what would decent people say about us? We built a fine mesh fence around, right around AA. Maybe this sounds comical now. Maybe you think we old-timers were pretty intolerant. Yeah, yeah, they still are. But I can tell you there was nothing funny about the situation then. We were grim because we felt our lives and homes were threatened, and that was no laughing matter. Intolerant, you say? Well, we were frightened. Naturally, we began to act like most everybody does when afraid. After all, isn't fear the true basis of intolerance? Yes, we were intolerant. How could we then guess that all those fears were to prove groundless? How could we know that thousands of these sometimes frightening people were to make astonishing recoveries and become our greatest workers and intimate friends? Was it credible that AA was to have a divorce rate far lower than average? How could you fucking know that? Could we then foresee that troublesome people were to become our principal teachers of patience and tolerance? Could any then imagine a sobriety which would include every conceivable kind of character and cut across every barrier of race, creed, politics, and language with ease? I, that's one of my favorite things about the, the organization. It, it is just a huge, wide, I mean, just bizarre range of people of all classes. When you go to a meeting, everybody's pretty well equal. Why did AA finally drop all its membership regulations? 
Why did we leave it to each newcomer to decide himself whether he was an alcoholic and whether he should join us? Why did we dare to say, contrary to the experience of society and government everywhere, that we would neither punish nor derive any AA of membership, that we must never compel anyone to pay anything, believe anything, or confirm to anything? The answer, now seen in Tradition 3, was simplicity itself. At least experience taught us that to take away any alcoholic's full chance was sometimes to pronounce his death sentence, and often to condemn him to endless misery. Who dared to be judge, jury, and executioner of his own sick brother? As group after group saw these possibilities, they finally abandoned all membership regulations. Our dramatic experience after another clinched this determination until it became our universal tradition. Here are two examples. On the AA calendar, it was year two. In that time, nothing could be seen but two struggling, nameless groups of alcoholics trying to hold their faces up to the light. A newcomer appeared at one of these groups, knocked on the door, and asked to be let in. He talked frankly with the group's oldest member. He soon proved that he was a desperate case, and that above all, he wanted to get well. But, he asked, will you let me join your group? Since I am the victim of another addiction even worse stigmatized than alcoholism, you may not want me among you. Or will you? There was the dilemma. What should the group do? The oldest member summoned two others and in confidence laid the explosive facts in their laps. Said he, well, what about it? If we turn this man away, he'll soon die. If we allow him in, only God knows what trouble he'll brew. What should the answer be, yes or no? At first, the elders could look only at the objections. We deal, they said, with alcoholics only. Shouldn't we sacrifice this one for the sake of the many? So went the discussion while the newcomer's fate hung in the balance. Then one of the three spoke up in a very different voice. What we are really afraid of, he said, is our reputation. We are much more afraid of what people might say than the trouble this, this strange alcoholic might bring. Fucking strange alcoholic. What are they talking about? As we've been talking, five short words have been running through my mind. Something keeps repeating to me. What would the master do? Not another word was said. What more indeed could be said? The fuck? Master's capitalized in that. I'm guessing they must mean God. Well, clearly God wouldn't do shit until you beg for his fucking guidance. Overjoyed, the newcomer plunged into 12-step work. Tirelessly, he laid AA's message before scores of people. Since this was a very early group, those scores have since multiplied themselves into thousands. Never did he trouble anyone with his other difficulty. AA had taken its first step in the formation of Tradition 3, and that's all based on a drug addict. And for the most part, people in Alcoholics Anonymous will absolutely shit on other people for talking about drug addiction in Alcoholics Anonymous. Fucking baffling to me. Baffling. I have a friend of mine who, well, he's a person I've worked on his podcast a couple times. He'll probably be on this one. He he struggled with Alcoholics Anonymous in the beginning because he had to lie about why he was there. For him, AA worked better than NA, and this book wasn't written when NA was a thing. So he had to make up stories to sound like he was talking about alcohol just so that he would feel welcome. What in the actual fuck? <laughs> that should never have been the case. And it's in here in the book. It's in the traditions. It's in, it's in, it's in the work that that he'd still be welcomed if he never even talked about alcohol. And I know it says that, you know, as long as you have a desire to quit drinking, but could you imagine how many people have felt like they needed to find a different solution that maybe wasn't readily available and then took their last drug, took their last drink in a different way? It's fucking baffling to me. Not long after the man with the double stigma knocked for admission, AA's other members received into its membership a salesman we shall call Ed. A power driver, this one, and brash as any salesman could possibly be. And it's it's been long speculated, or it might even be confirmed, that this Ed person is Jim Burwell. So it's going to be fairly interesting to kind of hear how this goes. But he is the boisterous sort of voice of reason, that uh, the atheist voice of reason that helped shape some of early AA and, and, and longer. He had at least an idea a minute on how to improve AA. 
These ideas he sold to fellow members with the same burning enth enthusiasm with which he uh, distributed automobile polish. But he had one idea that wasn't so sellable. Ed was an atheist. His pet obsession was that AA could get along better without its god nonsense. He browbeat everybody, and everybody expected that he'd soon get drunk. For at the time, you see, AA was on the pious side. There must be a heavy penalty, it was thought, for blasphemy. Distressingly enough, Ed proceeded to stay sober. What a way to describe that. At length, the time came for him to speak in a meeting. We shivered, for we knew what was coming. He paid a fine tribute to the fellowship. He told how his family had been reunited. He extolled the virtue of honesty. He recalled the joys of 12-step work, and then he lowered the boom. Cried Ed, I can't stand this God stuff. It's a lot of malarkey for weak folks. This group doesn't need it, and I won't have it. To hell with it. I just can't even imagine that that's how that went down, but whatever. A great wave of outraged resentment engulfed the meeting, sweeping every member to a single resolve. Out he goes! <laughs> Fuck, could you imagine if they had actually outed the only atheist that had a strong voice? Not the only one that had a voice. The one that had the strongest. Like, the, if that had been the foundation. And it still kind of is happening, you know? Like, it's not like this just cured that as an issue. Uh, but it's interesting that this was, like, a major point of contention, that it made it into the traditions. It's weird that they didn't use his real name, even though they reference him in a way that makes it seem like this must be Jim Burwell, you know? The elders led Ed aside. They said firmly, you can't talk like this around here. You'll have to quit it or get out. With great sarcasm, Ed came back at them. Now do tell. Is that so? He reached over to a bookshelf and took up a sheaf of, sheaf of papers. On top of them lay the foreword to the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Then under preparation, he read aloud, the only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. Relentlessly, Ed went on, when you guys wrote that sentence, did you mean it or didn't you? Fucking one of the best lines ever in any kind of thing that occurred. Swear. I love, I love this guy. This is like my fucking spirit animal. Dismayed, the elders looked at one another, for they knew he had them cold. So Ed stayed. Ed not only stayed, he stayed sober month after month. The longer he kept dry, the louder he talked. Against God. The group was in a get, uh, anguish so deep that all fraternal charity had vanished. When, oh when, groaned members of one another, will that guy get drunk? See, can you fucking... God damn, man. How dare that guy stay sober a different way? Fuck, will he just hurry up and drink already? Clearly he's not working this program to the satisfaction of me. So, can he just fucking ruin his life and die already? Such shittiness, and there's so many people still like this. Quite a while later, Ed got a sales job which took him out of town. At the end of a few days, the news came in. He'd sent a telegram for money and everybody knew what that meant. Then he got on the phone. In those days, we'd go anywhere on a 12-step job, no matter how unpromising. But this time, no nobody stirred. Leave him alone. Let him try it by himself for once. Maybe he'll learn a lesson. Fuck all those guys. Seriously. Man, this is upsetting me. <laughs> I forgot about this part of this, this chapter. About two weeks later, Ed stole by night into an AA member's house and, unknown to the family, went to bed. Daylight found the master of the house and another friend drinking their morning coffee. A noise was heard on the stairs. To their consternation, Ed appeared. A quizzical smile on his lips, he said, Have you fellows had your morning meditation? They quickly sensed that he was quite in earnest. In fragments, his story came out. In a neighboring state, Ed had holed up in a cheap hotel. After all his pleas for help had been rebuffed, these words rang in his fevered head. They have deserted me. I have been deserted by my own kind. This is the end. Nothing is left. 
As he tossed on his bed, his hand brushed the bureau nearby, touching a book. Opening the book, he read, It was a Gideon Bible. Ed never confided any more of what he saw and felt in that room. It was the year 1938. He hasn't had a drink since. Nowadays, when old-timers who know Ed foregather... What does that word mean? Foregather? They exclaim, What if we had actually succeeded in throwing Ed out for blasphemy? What would have happened to him and all the others he later helped? So the hand of providence early gave us a sign that any alcoholic is a member of our society when he says so. What? What? That's not even what they fucking... No, they oust somebody. And then he basically lied about a situation, it seems like. Just made up some kind of like... He didn't even go into detail. He's probably still... As far as I understand, he remained an atheist until he died. He basically just realized that if he didn't fucking say something, they were going to kick him out of the last fucking thing that could help at the time. This isn't a parable. This is bullshit. (laughs) Fucking A. Early AA was completely built on this foundation that, hey, if we kick someone out and they don't die and they come back, then we did something right? As long as they change... As long as they do what we say, that's what this, that's where so many people get this stuck in. It, it, I'm not even fucking coherently making sentences at the moment. This is upsetting. I had no idea that this was in this book. I had no idea that this was worded this way. Jim Burwell was an atheist until he passed away. He may have said something about having found some sort of spirituality, but I think if you were given the option of working this program or fucking else, you know, and thinking that that was the only option that was going to be available to you, or you're going to fucking die, then you kind of, you kind of either lie, make, you know, pay lip service, pretend, uh, just to stay in, or you actually convert. The fact that they would pressure somebody in this way, that they would kick them out because they didn't fucking believe the same thing as him, as a, and then he used that in a book that's supposed to be about a recovery program based on inclusion. Fuck that. I don't like this at all. <laughs> Clearly. Sorry, I'm getting a little rancy about this. This is not an okay section here. It's not okay that they did that to somebody in recovery at all. It's not okay that they put somebody through that. It's not okay that they oust somebody. And then their big message was, well, he came around to God, so it's fine. I'm going to reiterate this for anybody that might be new to the program who maybe is on the fence about what they might believe. If you cannot push people out, you can't tell people what their recovery is entails or should entail or how it's going to fucking falter or how it's wrong or how it's not working because it's not yours. It just fucking isn't yours. The idea that the founding members at some point kicked somebody out of the group for not being fucking Christian uh, bothers the shit out of me, which I've said a few times. So uh, I'm not a fan of that. I wasn't really expecting that. Like I said, it's been a long time since I've read this book. So this is really pretty fucking raw uh, reaction to that last little couple paragraphs and uh, leaves me with a lot to think about and hopefully it'll be something i explore in the next episode for now i think we'll leave it at that so probably just kind of get into a loop of, of saying the same things over and over and over again i don't want to do that um if you are interested in having a conversation with me about how this chapter or the one that preceded it that was based on step three you know reach out and uh we can have a conversation about it. You can find me on Facebook at an atheist reads the big book of AA. You can find me via email one atheist in AA at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at an atheist in, and you can find me on TikTok at the beardo B E I R D O. I really appreciate everybody who's listening. I appreciate anybody who's had some struggles with finding their way in this program doing so anyways. 
and maybe you move away from it. Maybe you, you find a path that doesn't even really look like much of what I'm even reading about, uh, but it keeps you sober and keeps you happy and keeps you sane. I, I'm all for it. I don't care what that looks like. As long as it's not causing harm to other people, I don't care what it looks like. You're welcome here. And I will absolutely fight for that in every conceivable way that I can. I appreciate all of you and thank you for keeping me sober one more day.